Chapter 3, Act 3. At that time, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I must find you a home for you, that you will be secure. Now Boaz, with whom female servants you worked, is our close relative. Look, tonight he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor. So bathe yourself, rub on some perfumed oil, and get dressed up, and then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let the man know that you're there until he finishes his meal. When he gets ready to go to sleep, take careful notice of the place where he lies down, and then go uncover his legs and lie down beside him, and he will tell you what you should do. Ruth replied to Naomi, I will do everything you have told me to do. So Naomi, Naomi like a good older Jewish woman, is going to now play matchmaker, like fiddler on the roof. She says, we need to find you a man. We need to provide you a future. I mean, right now is good, but you need a future. Now remember, even though I jokingly say you need to find you a man, this isn't we need to find you a man in a Hollywood American kind of a sense. It's we need to find you a future, a, a life that's long-term, stability, that continues beyond just this year. Boaz is a great candidate. He's capable of providing for you, and he's already shown that he's willing. Naomi teaches Ruth how to put out the Israelite vibe. Bathe, which is not common in the ancient world. Perfume, which is incredibly expensive in the ancient world. Dress yourself up, which is not practical in the ancient world. And go. Find where he lies down. Cover yourself up with his blanket. And then whatever he tells you to do, you obey. If he sends you away, then do it. And if he doesn't, then you do it. Put your trust in Boaz. And the question is, now what she's saying is, will you be our kinsman redeemer? Will you save us from poverty? That's what she's asking for. That's what she's sending. And it also includes marriage, because why not? I mean, yes, this is not a romance story, and this isn't about lust like Americans do, but they're still human, and there's still love, and there's still desire. And there's still dreams. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. Remember, like I said, the problem is there's nothing wrong with romance. It's when we make it the, the obsession or the focus of the foundation of the relationship. So there's nothing wrong with seeing some romance here, but just don't make that the point. So he goes. Now the threshing floor. The threshing floor is basically what we do is you cut down the grain. We talked about this with Gideon. But you cut down the grain, and you gather up in the bundles, and you carry it over to this stone floor that you've laid out in the middle of the fields. It's probably been there for generations. And you cut up the heads, of the, the heads of the grain off, and then you thresh it. You beat it. You throw it up in the air. You break up the grain from the stalk and the chaff so that you can begin to separate it. And then you might even begin to do some of the grinding there. You don't have enough workers in your family to harvest your fields on your own. And so like the Amish, who all raise a barn together, you will go out, and remember, your fields are large. So a lot of times if people live in a village, their fields are way out there. And you have to walk a long distance to go, and you're doing everything by hand. And so it's not practical to spend a couple hours walking out to the, on the outskirts of your field and harvesting and then coming back a couple of hours, and you've lost incredible daylight just walking. In a time period where you only have so much time to harvest before it goes bad, and in a time period where 
time of the judges, there might be somebody who's raiding you. And so, and there's no safety being out there just with your wife and your kids. And so a lot of times a community would go out together and they would just harvest the people's fields and they would just move from field to field to field as a community because there's safety in numbers, there's speed in many hands, and then they would sleep out there during the harvest time. And because they would gather together, the community, women would sleep in one place, the women in another. There's safety at night, sleeping in great communities. There's warmth in sleeping communities. And it's practically saving daylight, too. And so what he's saying is that um, now Ruth is probably coming home because she's not trying to get an entire field done. And she is not part of the community yet. But everybody else is out there. So the threshing floor is also where they would sleep and gather together. So he says, go down and notice where she sleeps. He sleeps. He will tell you what to do. So she went out to the threshing floor, did everything her mother-in-law had instructed her to do. And when Boaz had finished his meal and was feeling satisfied, if you're going to throw a big political, economic, long-term decision on a man, make sure he's eaten. That's true women, too. Never try to make big decisions or settle arguments or disputes on an empty stomach. Probably the greatest advice that any marriage counseling could ever tell you is eat first, get sleep, and eat before you resolve conflict and make big decisions. We do not think well when we're hangry. Lay down to sleep at the far end of the grain heap, and then Ruth crept up quietly, uncovered his legs, and lay down beside him in the middle of the night. That is the weirdest way to propose to somebody. <laughs> Remember, everything looks weird when you're a culture looking at another culture. There's a lot of things Americans do weird, too. But what she's doing is this. Here's the other thing that's cool. They had these, in the ancient world, they wear these robes that were maybe a little bit more like a blanket. And the robe functioned in a very practical way. The robe sheltered you from the heat and actually having loose-fitting clothes. Like, a lot of times you think, like, wow, aren't those people in the Middle East, like, really hot when they're, like, clothed from head to toe? Well, that's actually really cool because those fabrics actually breathe really well. And because they're loose-fitting and they move really well, it almost becomes like a portable fan. It creates a breeze and some comfort. But those robes are also very practical because they can actually operate as like a hoodie to protect you from the windstorms and the sand and that kind of stuff. They can also be um, a blanket at night that you cover yourself up in. And they often, they would have tassels on them. Remember Joseph and his coat? The tassels represent your family, your lineage, your authority, that kind of stuff. And sometimes they would actually hold these things out and you've probably seen the Hasidim or the Jewish at the, um, the Western Wall. And they kind of rock back and forth and they pull their robe over their head and hold it out and the tassels kind of hang out. And they do this kind of bouncing movement as they pray or recite scripture. Because those tassels and that blanket sticking out was kind of a metaphorical picture of the wings of God. Now he's got this robe and he's lying under it and he just said, under the wings of God who you have found protection. And Naomi is now saying, go put yourself under his wings. So she, and then lying at the feet is submission. This isn't an aggressive female violating tradition by asking for a hand of marriage first, which technically there's nothing wrong with that, but traditionally and culturally that 
bothers us sometimes. But this is a woman who is asking for protection. This isn't about, I think you're really sexy. Or, I'm a gold digger. This is about, you're a community. You're protecting me. You're the only example other than Naomi, what I've seen of Yahweh. And so I'm laying myself at your feet in submission, asking you to do more than just marry me, but to actually look out for me and protect me and provide for me like a husband should. And I'm placing myself under the wings of God because you have become God in the flesh to me. It's an act of submission. Many scholars teach that they had sex. That she lift up his blanket because the word feet in the Hebrew is sometimes used throughout Scripture as a euphemism for the male genitalia. Now you're like, that's a weird slang. But we have a lot of really weird slangs for sexual things in our culture too that make no sense. The feet can sometimes be used as a euphemism for the male genitalia. So the professors at colleges teach that she lay down at his genitalia. They had sex under the blanket. And that's how they began things. Now there's a problem with this. He woke up in the middle of the night and he was startled. Who are you? She replied, I am Ruth, your servant. Marry your servant, for you are a guardian of the family interests. He said, may you be rewarded by Yahweh, my dear. This act of devotion or loving kindness, chesed, is greater than the what you did before. For you have not set out to marry one of the young men, whether rich or poor. Now, my dear, don't worry. I intend to do everything you propose. For everyone in the village knows that you are a worthy woman. Do godly people make mistakes? Yes. Would it be surprising if Ruth and Boaz, is the Bible ever scared of showing mistakes and failures of godly people? Would it be surprising knowing everything that we've ever learned about every biblical character so far, where they all have a story of absolute failure in the midst of their godliness, that the gods are doing the same thing here? I'm not going to tell you that they didn't have sex because how could that be in the Bible? They're so godly. Because that would completely disregard every other story in the Bible and everything else I've said about everybody else. And I missed the big point of the entire Bible that all have fallen short of the glory of God. I'm telling you they didn't have sex because the text context and the narrator is telling you they didn't have sex. And the reason is this. Yes, godly people make mistakes. But godly people actually act differently when they make mistakes than when ungodly people do. People don't have sex and wake up the next morning and not know who's there. Now, sometimes they do in our culture. But look at their reputation. Are they known for being alcoholics? Are they known for being careless? No. Does that mean that they can't fail? No. But they don't have a reputation. So first, they don't have a reputation of this kind of stuff. That doesn't mean they can't fail. It's not typical for you to wake up the next morning and not know who they're there. And even in a sorority fraternity context, you have to be really drunk to completely forget the previous night. Godly people don't have sex with each other in an illicit kind of a way and say, may Yahweh bless you. When godly people make mistakes and mess up big time, they immediately feel guilt and shame. Because if you don't feel guilt and shame, you're not godly. 
Even ungodly people feel guilt and shame. And so you don't get up the next morning after having sex with somebody and the first thing out of your mouth is, may Yahweh bless you. The other thing is, you don't turn to them and say, this act of kindness is even greater than the previous. What was the previous act of kindness? Sacrificing everything for Naomi. So what she just did has to do with Naomi. You don't talk about your mother-in-law after you just illicitly had a sexual affair. And you don't talk about how loving, how is them messing up and having sex in the middle of the night with each other an act of kindness to the mother-in-law. And then you also don't turn around and say, and everybody knows what godly woman you are. The context makes it very clear that they didn't have sex. And not only that, what in the world does Ruth asking him to marry her have anything to do with Naomi? Because Ruth is actually not asking for marriage for just the sake of getting married. And this is why you have to understand what the first act of kindness is. Not only does it help you understand that they didn't mess up, because you don't say those kind of things when you mess up, but the other thing it says is this. Ruth, Naomi said, go find a husband. Go to the kinsman redeemer. Ruth goes there, and whatever her actions is, Boaz interprets this as provide for my mother-in-law. Now, where in the world did he get his idea? This is called a leveret marriage. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy 25 says that if I, as a man, am married to a woman, and I die before I can have children, then my brother is required, and the context implies who is not married, to marry my widow to provide me with descendants because God values descendants. And what's interesting, the law forbid the brother marrying the spouse of a dead brother. Yet God made an exception in this one area which says how important descendants are to God that God would actually make an exception to his anti-don't-marry-your-brother's-wife when he's died unless he has no kids. That shows you how important descendants are to God. The whole point is that my brother will now have a kid with my widowed wife to provide me with a son, and that son will then take my name and my inheritance and carry it on. But the only person that's required to do this is a brother. The kinsman redeemer is not required to do this. Those laws have nothing to do with each other. What would be a greater act of kindness than taking care of Naomi physically by feeding her and providing her shelter? Providing her a future descendant. Naomi says, daughter, I am going to help you find a husband for you. Ruth goes off and says, marry me to provide a child for Elimelech. Notice how Elimelech has come back into the story. That's not what Naomi sent her to do. But remember that shouldn't surprise you because neither one of them were thinking about themselves and were only thinking about each other in the first chapter. In the second chapter. So it shouldn't be surprising that Naomi says, forget me, you find a husband, I'll help you. And Ruth is saying, forget me, let's provide a descendant for Elimelech and Naomi. 
And Boaz interprets it that way because he says this act of kindness is even greater than the previous. And that shows you that's the whole point of this story. It's not just about providing a practical needs. It's about providing a future, descendants, a legacy. That's something that we don't talk about Americans is enough. The idea of legacy, descendants. I mean, I know as I've never been there as a grandparent, but I know probably as a grandparent, you start thinking about that a lot more. But it's not really until you become a grandparent that culturally speaking, I'm not saying none of you have, but as a culture, you don't really start talking about, thinking about descendants until you have grandchildren. And I only know that by listening to grandparents. I, I, have, no, I have no practical experience there. I mean, when you're a parent, you're mostly just thinking about survival and, and having kids that are healthy and holistically in every way and don't become a menace to society or broken emotionally. But then when you become a grandparent, there becomes a sense where like, oh, I know my, my days are now numbered and, and there's not that desperate need to make my family like, and now it's about what am I going to leave behind? But even then, <coughs> legacy and descendants isn't so powerfully ingrained like it is in the Eastern culture. And that's what Naomi's asking for. Now, why in the world would Naomi, or sorry, why in the world would Ruth ever think that Boaz would do something the law doesn't require him to do? Because that's what he's been doing. Not only has he shown that he's willing to obey the law in the time period of the judges, but he's demonstrated that he's willing to go over and beyond. Ruth actually thinks that he might actually go over and beyond in the lever marriage too. He is not required to do this. But she asks for it, and then he says, I will make sure this happens. He could say, woman, I don't have to do that. Once again, you, you could have gone after any of the younger men. Because romantically, sexually attraction, it makes more sense to go after a young man who's young and youthful and, and, and you will have a longer future together and that kind of stuff. But those young men cannot provide for a Lemelech like Boaz can. And, there may no, and those other men haven't demonstrated the character that they're willing to make marriage about more than just their own family, but the family of some dead guy that they've never met. And that's really important for you to understand because this marriage is not just about Boaz and Ruth. This marriage is about providing for a dead man, a, a life, an ancestry. This is why Manoah's wife has forever forgotten her name in the Bible. And yet Ruth and Naomi and Boaz are so immortalized that even though university professors completely missed the point, they're still talking about them. Because one failed to communicate the purpose of their son and didn't really value that. And the other one is doing everything in their power to provide for a guy that she never even met, actually. Because remember, he died before she got married to his sons. She never even knew her father-in-law. But she knows her father-in-law through her mother-in-law. And that's how much she loves them both. And she is making her marriage about her mother-in-law and her father-in-law and providing them a line. Not about her own desires to have swept off her fate by Prince Charming. 
And this is powerful. So he says, I will make sure this happens. But even though he's willing to do this, he also is going to do it the right way. And so he says, there is a kinsman redeemer that's closer to me, and I have to give him the chance first. But no matter what, it will happen. It will either be him or it will be me, but it will happen. Now, little side note. Boaz, this is what chapter 4 is all about. And this is what we're going to get to next time. But chapter 4 is about Boaz making sure that it works out that it's him. See, here's the thing. You can either work the system for your own power and your own money and your own profit. And lots of people are really good at working the American system for their own good. Or you can work the system for the benefit of the oppressed and the needy and the poor that don't have a chance in the system. And Boaz is so amazing here that he's going to work the system in his community not because he selfishly wants to gain something, not because it's for his own power and his own fame or his own success and comfort, but he's going to end up working the system because he knows that he will actually provide a descent for Elimelech where probably nobody else is going to do that. And he wants to make sure that that happens. He has heard the deep cry of Ruth and he knows very few people, probably nobody, will really meet that cry. And he's going to work the system so that the downtrodden, the needy, the poor, the about-to-be-completely-lost descendant is taken care of. Right now he says, if you're Ruth, you're thinking, oh, crap, I don't know who this other guy is. What am I going to get? But Ruth, or Boaz, is in his mind thinking, don't worry. I know what I'm doing. I will take care of you. So you said, remain here another night in the morning. If he agrees to marry you, fine, let's do so. But if he does not want to do so, I promise as surely as Yahweh lives, that's a covenant oath, to marry you, sleep here until morning. So she slept beside him until morning. She woke up while it was still dark, and Boaz thought, no one must know that a woman visited the threshing floor. They're not doing that because they're trying to cover up a sin. We've already addressed that issue. They're doing that to make sure that nobody misunderstands what happened. Sometimes covering things up is not a bad thing because we all know how the evilness of gossip and rumor works. You don't have to tell everybody everything. In fact, it's incredibly unwise. Some things are worth hidden, not because you're hiding for your own purpose, your own glory or sin. You're hiding it for the sake of the fact that the sinners in the world are just too selfish and too gossip-oriented to keep it a secret for the sake of that person. Sin should be confessed, but sin should be wisely confessed to the right people. Not all sin should be publicly declared in front of the entire church. Is there a time? The more public the sin, the more public the confession. I do believe that if you've wronged the entire church, or it affects the entire church, you should stand up in front of the church and confess it. But that's where elders and wise people come together in prayer and figure out what is God saying about that. And so he realizes in his wisdom, this is not good. We're hiding not because we're shameful. We're hiding because 
we know the world we live in. And then he said, hold out your shawl and you were wary and grip it tightly. And as she held it tightly, the shawl put on her shoulders. And then he went into the town and he returned her mother-in-law. So she pulls out her robe, kind of like her shirt. And he heaps all this grain into her and sends it home. Now, remember, grain is a symbol of fertility. And so this is the narrator's way of hinting at that it will be Boaz. And the same way that he's provided her fertility to grain, he will provide her fertility of children. And so this act ends with you now realizing the whole story is about Elimelech's line. And Ruth is willing to make her marriage about Elimelech's line. And Boaz is willing to make his marriage and his economic success about Elimelech's line. That's incredible chesed. Because this act of chesed is greater than the previous. And this is what's so powerful is that most of our marriages are about our own desires. And it's usually not until we got older and wiser and made a lot of mistakes we begin to realize a bigger purpose. But from the very beginning, they get the bigger purpose. And he sends her home with heaping protection. And he says, I'll make sure this happens. And I'll make sure you're protected. Because everybody is looking out for everybody else. And that's powerful because judges is constantly repeating and everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. And now Ruth is subtly, it doesn't say it because it shouldn't have to because it's so actually powerful. Ruth is saying everybody is looking out for other people, which means they're going to end up producing the line that will lead to the king. And that's a powerful, this is why I think you have to read Ruth with the historical writings rather than the prophets. Because after hearing that and seeing all that dark selfishness and hearing they had no king, so therefore they did what was right in their own eyes, now you're seeing this beauty, this love, this chesed. Everybody's looking out for everybody else. And the book is going to end with God saying, you don't know it yet, but that Jesse is going to give birth to David, who's going to be a godly man, who's going to lead the line of Christ, who is going to be the king, who's going to transform our hearts where we can actually not do our will, but Yahweh's will. And they have no idea that they're going to be a part of that. All they're doing is they're being faithful to God in this moment right now. And they're not trying to think of a big kingdom picture. Just thinking about what can I do with what I have now? And God turns it into the big kingdom picture. It's okay to dream big. It's okay to look at the future. But sometimes we just say, what am I supposed to do now? This ends. Chapter 3 ends with everything's hopeful. Everything's good. And you know everything's going to work out. But now you're kind of the edge of your seat. Because you're wondering, is it, you mean, at this point, it's okay to now say, I want her to marry Boaz. <laughs> it's the couple on the TV show that they spend three seasons teasing you with this, like, romance thing. And you want them to get together, but every time they come together, something happens because, and they'll never get together because that doesn't keep the, the narrative moving. And every time they get together, then something happens. She gets sick or he has to move away. And they're married now but because that's what TV shows love to do. They love to create the tension. And because what God is saying is ultimately, the end, there's nothing wrong 
with wanting this to happen. There's nothing wrong with seeing two people and saying they're so good for each other and they should be together. But they're not good with each other because there's this amazing romantic spark. They're so good for each other because they're so sacrificially loving. And they deserve to be together because together they can do an amazing kingdom building. And so now you're on the edge of your seat and season one just ended. And you have no idea whether they're going to get together. And you want them to get together. But you've got to wait for an entire week. (laughs) 